0: Yeah, we have a session Tuesday, and I'll be taking off the week up to December 25th, We have a call to worship. Behold, bless ye the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, which by night stand in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary, and bless the Lord, the Lord that made heaven and earth. Bless thee out of Zion. It's by our hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. Let us stand and let us sing 95B, 95B. ask God Almighty that we would not be like church of old, and that we would submit to your will and be satisfied with your providence in our life, God Almighty. Help us, we pray, to that end, to continue to follow you, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, as you've given us grace and strength to do that. We ask for, Lord, that your presence would be with us in special measure this evening. Amen. You may be seated. Let us turn to Hymn 293. Above, we think upon the wonders and the things that you have done for your people, as we come before you in prayer this evening. You've been with your church through the beginning, God, as you called us and gathered us from Adam and Eve onward through the gospel call, of the promised seed, and unfolded that revelation through time and space, God, and giving us a little here, a little there. Eventually, writing it down, God, and giving us the prophets and Moses and the whole entire Old Testament, God, and the fullness of the revelation therein that exploded, was magnified through Christ Jesus our Lord 2,000 years ago, in which we had the New Testament to give us the fullness of the revelation of your love and your covenant towards us through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, God, may we meditate upon that and how you've preserved the church and expanded her reach from a small little ragtag group in the Middle East to virtually every country in the world. Be with her, we pray, God purify her, strengthen her, that she may glorify you, God, in all that she does, to be a witness to the nations and the church and the places and the people around her. We ask, God, to that end, that you would continue to bless the efforts of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church for her mission work, not only overseas, God, but missions stateside, that is here, nearby, and closer to us. We pray, Lord, for their continued efic- efficacy, Lord, that you would work in your history, through our history, and your providence, God, that their efforts would not fall flat. Establish churches, Lord. Call pastors and spread the gospel and the kingdom of God uh, through the suburbs, through cities, through the countryside, God. And wherever else we can find, Lord, and your wisdom we pray that we would use common sense, God, as a denominational committee, as well, Lord, as the presbytery and their committees and local churches that support and establishes local churches and missionary works, Lord, that you would be with them and give them what they need financially. And again, Lord, wisdom and understanding the times and seasons they find themselves in, God, and that they would be zealous towards these things, Lord, and towards the love of their fellow neighbors. That they can bring the gospel to them, and Lord, to those we think of especially, God, of how many of us were, who were floundering and lost in various and confused ways, and we were Christians, Lord, and give them better instruction, we pray. We ask God, again, in spite of our weaknesses and limitations as a denomination, not only our denomination, but others, Lord, who are faithful to your word, that you would increase their efforts to establish faithful churches across this nation. Our Lord and Savior, we pray for our brothers and sisters in the military, we think in particular of Simon and Tolly. God, that you would be with them and protect them and preserve them from the various difficulties and unique problems that are there in the military, as some of us know. Our God, preserve them, we pray, and bring them back to us. And we ask in particular, Lord, for peace there, overseas, in Ukraine and Russia, and elsewhere across the world, that we would not needlessly throw out our military might everywhere, just for the sake of exercising, and using, and spending, and whatever the reason is, God, but we would maintain and seek out peace, as we ought as a nation, and as churches and Christians. We ask, God, that you be with those in the medical field, and the police, and emergency services, God. We have family members and people that we know, some of whom have been here and now moved to Texas, God. Uh, that work in these fields, that you would protect them and guide them, that they would be a light into the dark world that's around them, for they will see much wickedness, much terrible things, God, and the effects of sin, of misery, and of ultimately of death. That people would have their minds opened, Lord, that this is not normal, that there is a problem, and they ought to repent and believe and trust in you. But above all again, God, protect your people and help them, and those in the military as well, who do not have good access To a church, that they can do what they can, God, to read your word and to pray and sing psalms and prayers before you, God Almighty, in their hearts and with their lips, we pray. It would lift up our health concerns, God Almighty, for our bodies, that we would continue to take care of them, that you would help those. And we think of uh, some recently, Lord, who cannot make it here because of the ailments upon their body, that they would be healed and healed quickly, God, given the resources they need to persevere and to do what they can to take care of their body. Indeed, for all of us, Lord. We're thankful that we have access to many things, that we continue to have access to and many and alternate paths to health, Lord, uh, in this day and age. It would not be a chokehold upon the truth that we can find something that we need, God, to take care of us physically in various and sundry ways, and certainly with exercise and the like that we would use common sense to preserve what we can in our health and not spread our sicknesses around. Help us, we pray to that end, Lord, to do what we can to be thankful that you've given us a body. You've given us many good things, Lord, and that we could use these things and our body for your glorious name's sake and to help one another. We ask and pray, Lord, not only for our physical health, but our spiritual health, we continue to grow in sanctification of reading your word, of praying before you throughout the week, of worshiping you, God, privately and publicly to thank you for all the things you've done and to recommit ourselves, Lord, to know that you love us and are there for us in spite of our sins and that you forgive us through Christ Jesus our Lord every day, Lord. Your mercies are new. And so, God, may we continue to use the means of grace you've given us privately and publicly again, God, and to use them all together, God, that you have... Bless us with these things by your Spirit. You've given us your blessings through them, as you have promised. May we continue to use them and not depend upon them as such, as much as we depend upon you, we pray. Help us, Lord, to continue to grow in unity and fellowship as the body of Christ, your providence, and to pray for one another and encourage and help one another. We ask for your blessings upon all of us, through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. Let us rise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, the creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy. Thank you again that we can give tithes and offerings, God Almighty. May you continue to bless us so that we can continue to give for the work of the kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We are in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verses 31 to 35. Let us listen attentively to the Word of God. Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in the circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. Let us pray. With these words, Lord, may we learn anew what we know to be true, that certainly we are the family of God and the implications of that that in our lives, God. At the same time, what the implications are not, and how, Lord, there is a danger at times, it seems, especially in this day and age of abusing this passage. Help us, God, to understand in the right and to glorify you that we are brought into your, your family, God Almighty. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Who is my mother? Who is my brother? These are simple questions, at least on the surface And ten years ago they were, yet today the issue has become confused. If we pay attention, we'll see this, I believe. People, including Christians, speak the language of today about equality and loving everyone the same way often. More and more people talk about strangers being their brothers or mothers more than their own family members. Advertisements tell us this. They tell us we are closer to people who share our sporting interests, our clothing styles, and the automobiles we drive. That's how they're designed, aren't they? Oh, we have the same. Look, at we can all unite in this consumerism of America. More interest and more relationship, therefore, than we have with those who birthed us, grew up with us, wept and rejoiced with us all our lives. And thus we become more and more strangers to those who should... Be close to us. I heard about a recent example of this talk of loving everyone equally in the news the other day. A local pro-life group in Virginia was refused service at a restaurant for their offense of standing for life. (laughs) We don't like murdering babies. How dare you? We're not going to serve you... Instead of standing for the truth of God's word against them, and for the truth of God's word, I don't know if they were Christians, or probably were or at least Roman Catholic or something, the spokesman of that group complained to the restaurant they shouldn't have shut them out because these pro-lover, pro-lifers loved everyone and doesn't have any bad thoughts about anyone. Because we're all brothers and sisters, brothers in the Lord, or some kind of variation of that. The assumption is everyone should be treated the same because everyone is the same. Yet no one lives this way. Someone or some place is always preferred over someone else or some place else. It is the nature of human thought to only focus on one item at a time. We are not God and cannot think about helping Japanese Christians from a flood at the same time as we think about helping American Christians from a flood. We choose one over the other in our thoughts. We cannot be everywhere at once nor think about everything at once. We have to prioritize these things and our relationships. In particular, love gives us motivation and priorities in our heart while God's law directs motivations and priorities in our life to the right ends and right means. We love our parents, our siblings, our spouses, and our children. We think of them more often than other people, and that's good and proper. We are quick to help them and quick to forgive them. This is known as, as you've heard before, natural affection or storge the bible explicitly forbids us from not having natural affection in romans 131 but as with all good things from above natural affection can be abused as well and so now i'm coming more closely to the text i'm i'm going there brothers and sisters It can be abused, as any other good gift from God above. In the case of the Jews, after the exile, most of them developed a stronger version of natural affection that often turned into bigotry and hatred towards non-Jews, which were called, what, the Gentiles, or Gentile dogs. See that? For them, the mother and the brother were always more important than any... One who was not a Jew, a brother as a biological sibling, and a brother as a member of the Jewish community community were so emphasized in many Israelite circles that we can generally call them bigots at the time. We see that especially with the Pharisees. And the more pious among them even avoided walking in the same steps as the Gentiles, that they could avoid it out in the public spaces. In this text, we read about Christ introducing a new relationship on top of the natural relationship we have with our parents which is good and proper in its place and with our family. Those who follow Jesus. That's the new relationship. Or more precisely, highlighting that old relationship, those who follow the Messiah, and now focusing on not just who's the Messiah, we're not sure who the Messiah is. Now we know who the Messiah is. He has a name. His name is Jesus, Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, who is a man walking among us, who was born of a woman named Mary. And if you... Love him and follow him. This is a new relationship. This is now yet another priority in your life. You have work. You have neighbors. You have to balance these things. And God's like, now you have not just the Messiah as a faraway object, but now close and near to you as presented here in the Gospels, Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One. So this relationship here of those who follow Jesus, and he's highlighting this, it challenges the abuse of natural affections amongst the Jews as well as calling all of them to prioritize the Lord above all. He does so in a dramatic manner, as we see, by asking the question, Who is my mother? And So let us see what it means to have mothers and brothers in the kingdom of God. Who is my mother? The first point, what this means Again, the social context, which I built into from where we are today, because we're kind of the opposite social context, right? God has given us natural affections, and fear is one thing, for example. Love and friendship and joy. The natural affection in particular, this idea of those close to you, that you care for, can be abused in one of two ways, obviously. One is overemphasizing it so that anyone else who's not a family member is scum of the earth. Or oh, on the other hand, which is what I've seen today in some of the illustrations I gave you, I don't care about my family. I'd rather just run around with strangers and we have all these other interests that really aren't more important than family, like cars and entertainment and whatever else. We have a new family, we say. My new family, my new LGBTQ family or whatever. They use that metaphor all over the place. The social context here, of course, is the arrogant Jews, as I pointed out, and uh, we have Evidence of that, strong evidence in the New Testament, flashes of it, such as the Good Samaritan story, that's there to highlight the hypocrisy and the arrogance of the Pharisees. Don't take it beyond that point. Because again, the Samaritans were what? Half Jews. They weren't good enough. They're one step too close to being a Gentile. (laughs) And so Jesus was going after uh, that wrong use of natural affections. Arrogance towards other Jews, in fact, the Pharisees had. As a, you've heard before, they're called the hoi polloi, right out of the Greek. The masses, the many. You know, We don't want to get our hands you know, too dirty around these kind of people. That they're morally inferior to us. Although his words are not directed immediately at the Pharisees in this particular context, at least it's not explicitly here. And certainly the people around them, the multitude, right? And the multitude was sitting around him, as they often did. Why? What was Jesus doing? He was there preaching and teaching, as we see over and over again, up to here, to the end of chapter 3. Because they came together, and there's so many there, verse 20, at the house, that they, could, they couldn't even eat bread. And so Jesus is doing his ministry amongst the people, and he speaks to the people because he knows where they are. Where they are as they have... And generations of instruction by the Pharisees and the examples of the Pharisees, which is an arrogance and a pride of who they are biologically. What are you talking about, Jesus? We're the children of Abraham, they bragged to him. And what did Jesus say? God could raise up the rocks to be the children of Abraham, doesn't need you. And so. He is warning them and also exhorting them and redirecting them to something more important. That is your relationship to Jesus. Because the context here is me. That is Jesus saying myself, look, your mothers and brothers are outside. And they said, he says, who's my mother? Who's my brother? I'll tell you who my relations are, spiritually speaking, metaphorically speaking. Whoever does the will of God is related to me in that way. So it's more about Jesus than we realize. The immediate context here, of course, family members are trying to get Jesus' attention. And ordinarily, that's not a problem. Often, you would think, in ordinary situations, given natural affections towards your parents, you would listen to your parents rather quickly, even as an adult. Okay, what do you have to say? What's what's, what's wrong, Mom? What can I do for you? But many situations is not the same as all situations, is it? <laughs> What situations would not warrant stopping everything to heed your mother's request? I don't know. Sorry, Mom. I'm on the job. I can't talk to you right now. Right? Mom gets upset. That's her problem, unfortunately, because she has a wrong understanding of the proper relationship here. I have a job. I can't be interrupted right now. And something like this is going on here with Jesus. Jesus has a job, doesn't he? His job is to preach and to teach the kingdom of God. He has been baptized. Something special has been done to him to set him apart as the man-God, the God-man amongst his people, to preach, to be the prophet of all prophets, and to bring the message and the calling of repentance and of faith in him. Likely to further add more explanation of the context here in Jesus' response to his mother, his own mother, and his relations here. If you recall, back in verse 21, when his own people heard about this, all the multitudes and the healings and the instruction and there's just everyone everywhere, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said he is out of his mind. And I pointed out, that's probably related here right to verse 31. Probably his family members is thinking this as well. Uh, when we know this, for example, for his brothers in John chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. John chapter 7, we read, After these things Jesus walked to Galilee, for he did not want to walk into Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. That sounds pretty good, Right? Sounds like the brothers are believers. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, Jesus. What kind of a prophet are you, they're saying. And it explains to us, John does in verse 5, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Obviously they were being sarcastic. Say, so what kind of a, what kind of a prophet are you? You're hiding. You're not out in the public, in the open. And of course Jesus gives them a mild rebuke saying, my time's not ready. Although your time is. So he has family members. And even his mother didn't seem to understand it. You read in Luke chapter 2 at the end there, she pondered all these things in her heart, for example. Not fully grasping the implication of who Jesus was. And then, of course, in the great time of the first miracle of Jesus at Canaan. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. It's not Jesus' wedding. (laughs) He's not hosting it. And Jesus said, woman... What does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You don't get it, Mom. But he did the healing. He did the miracle in the healing. He did the miracle anyway. And so I think this is what's going on here. They don't have a full grasp of his ministry. They're interrupting him, and there's not a full understanding and a belief of who he is. And so he takes that opportunity, as he does often when he gets interrupted. He's able to turn on a dime and redirect that distraction right back to him. In the Gospel, I need to work on that. The emphasis here is on following Jesus and obeying the Father above. For whoever does the will of God is my brother. He's not saying your brothers and sisters with each other, although the implication is there and unpacked later in the Gospel. We'll talk about that. But here, immediately, it's Jesus and your relationship with Jesus, right? Do you do the will of God? Then you're my brother, you're my mother, and you're my sister. Not our mother or our brothers. Because Christ is the head of the new relationship, in particular of the New Testament church, that is emphasizing then, it is not the birth of being a Jew, and the sign of being a Jew, circumcision, but those who do the will of God. Whoever. It's a whoever preaching here. It's a whoever gospel here. Not whoever Jew, but whoever, even non-Jews, Gentiles, he's telling his audience, can be my brother and my mother and my sister, that is morally related to me because they are spiritually those who have been born again and wish to do the will of God above, who is my father, Jesus tells us. And so the Jewishness is no longer divinely sanctioned as the only way to live. Jesus, as the Son of God, was, of course, the head of the Old Testament church, and he gave them the law of Mount Sinai, we read in Stephen's sermon. Now he has come in the flesh, and with that coming comes a great change to teach and gather a body of both Jews and Gentiles. And that basis is no longer being a Jew, but what? Those who do the will of God. So he's already bringing and presenting to his Jewish audience, because that's who he has for three years, right? Three and a half years. It's a Jewish audience. He says, I come to the lost house of Israel. This is my desire to go to my own people. There's that natural affection that we're all inbred with. Nevertheless, he preaches, whoever does the will of God has this relationship with me. Because as we know, it was never about Jewish connections as much as obedience to God's will anyways, even in the Old Testament, because non-Jews could join the Jewish church. Mothers and brothers, of course, is a metaphor for those united by grace into Christ, by faith alone. And they are therefore regenerate, born again, and want to do the will of God. The metaphor highlighting the importance of the church, the New Testament church in particular, compared to what they used to be as Jews, and therefore is a mild rebuke against the bigotry of the Pharisees and probably a lot of the multitude. As you recall, in one incident, uh, I think it was a deaf man, or the dumb man, deaf man, coming to the multitude, and they pushed him away. I need Jesus. I'll go away. And Jesus is like, no, come over here. I'm going to heal you. I think it was the blind man because they are also following the pattern, as I pointed out again, of their leaders, the Pharisees. And so this is a mild rebuke against that kind of approach, uh, as well as apparently to the brothers and uh, Mary, that you don't get my my ministry, you don't get it yet, do you? Let me explain it to you, let me take this opportunity to pick up on this word and this question of my mother and my brother and explain to you that spiritually speaking or morally speaking, our relationship to Jesus... It is not biological, although he works through biology. That's why we baptize our children, for example, and they did in the Old Testament. But that baptism isn't enough, that biology isn't enough, they must be born again. They must do the will of the Father and follow Jesus. And so that, of course, everything changes in the New Testament era, and that's the gist of what this means. My mother, my brother, my sister is metaphorical language of being the body of Christ, related to him a new family of God. Not a real family. So now we get to the second point. Who is my my mother? What does this not mean? It doesn't mean this is the real family, with a capital R. I don't know what that means. I know people say that. They'll say, the body of Christ is the real family. No, it's it's a family. It's a spiritual family. It's an important family. It's not a real family like all the other families are fake or something. My family isn't fake. Your family isn't fake. It's a weird way of speaking. Not helpful, again, given uh, the large amount of Astorgy, right? Lack of natural affection we have towards those close to us in this day and age. It's misused as an excuse for church labor. This is one way it's misused. Cheap church labor, arguing that your time and money, your sweat and tears, should mostly, if not all of it, go into the church because we're the real family of God. Don't you love your mother? Go ahead. Don't you love your brother here? Ignore your family and take care of the church. I've seen that. It happens. Thankfully, I don't think it happens very often. Another way of misusing this, besides getting cheap labor in the church, uh, is to replace the family literally. Uh, it was subtle in the way it's described at times, even sloppily. I don't think it's always intentional. One quote I have here is, Jesus Christ not only established his kingdom and a new nation, but also a new family. It is a family characterized by radical obedience to the revealed will of God, a family that sticks closer than a blood brother because it is the family of God. That's not always true, (laughs) brothers and sisters. Don't sinners, don't Christians sin? Don't you have family members that have been more faithful and consistent with you in your life? As blood relations than Christians at times? I've seen that. So it's just a miss, it's just a miss way of speaking. It's not helpful, I think. Uh, again, it just depends. Right? It just depends. A non-believing blood brother, for example, can execute your will because he knows your family better than the Christian friend you have at church. There's nothing wrong with that. And probably everything right with it ordinarily. So being a family of God doesn't change all these dynamics. It just adds a new responsibility upon us, brothers. It doesn't replace the family at all. And although you could probably stick closer than blood relations, and bad times, we'll talk about that a little bit at the end, but in ordinary times, often they're there for you, or they should be there for you, and has been in the best of times. Misuse, of course, as well as an excuse for hatred. One step even worse. Another way of misusing this passage, not just for cheap labor, not just for replacing the family, but even for hatred. And that's coupled, they'll take this text and take Luke 14, for example, 26, right? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his whole life also, he cannot be my disciple. So there you go. Disavow your family and join the church. Is that what Jesus is saying? No, we know that. We know it's not what he's saying at all. He's not saying stop loving your family. Uh, that would be a contradiction to his law. That's a contradiction to his own actions, where he takes care of his mother on the cross and says to John the Apostle, Take care of my mom, because it's important for natural relations to be taken care of. Paul has an whole, whole argument in 1 Timothy 5, where he says, What? Take care of the widows. Who? The family. The children or the grandchildren, not the church. And so Christ is using hyperbole. At the same time, it's not hyperbole, as I'll get at the last point, because during times of persecution, when your family tells you, disavow God, what do you say? I'm sorry, Mom. I'm sorry, Dad. I cannot. I love Jesus more than you. That's what Jesus is saying. And so it's it's uh, really much abused. Here's an example, concrete example. Christians have been known to write out, there are Christians, not, it's like a pattern or something, but it has happened. Christians write out the unbelieving family relation, who's not a moral degenerate, basically an upstanding citizen, but just not Christian, out of the will and give everything to missions, for example, because it's somehow more godly. And that's just but an echo of what the Pharisees did when they gave all their money instead of helping their parents and called it kor, uh, korban, which means a gift to God. Right? It's, it's to God, so it's more holy than just giving to my parents. Dude, you're not helping your parents. What's going on here? Where's your love for your parents? God says, love your parents, love your relations, love your family, love, close, love those close to you. But it also includes, as this text tells us, love those close to us in Christ as well. And so, what does it look like? And the third point. As we know, of course, the metaphor is used elsewhere several times in the New Testament. The word brother, we're brothers in the Lord. Paul talks as though he is a father of the faith. He has birthed them, even as uses the metaphor of a mother. I've birthed you in Christ. 1 Timothy 5 one's the most famous one, as we all know. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as what? A father! Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger as sisters with all purity. Revelation 1.9, we read, I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. Here, we are getting to where this shines the most of being a brother and a sister in the Lord. The one another passages in persecution. As you know, there are over 50 of them in the New Testament from exhort one another, admonish one another, be friendly toward one another, bear one another's burdens, love one another, speak the truth to one another. <laughs> Why? Why so many? Because they've had 1,800 years of being cultural Jews, never having to share their culture with the Gentiles, and now they have to. And God's telling them, you've got to get over it. <laughs> And you see that unfold in Acts, up to the apex of Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council, where God says, it's not about being a Jew anymore. You don't have to follow the Jewish rites anymore. Gentiles can come in the church and stay Gentiles. And that takes a lot of effort to get over that, doesn't it? So they're hammered over and over again, one another, one another, one another, love one another, love one another. And one of the best ways to do that is to remind ourselves that we are the family of God. We don't replace the biological family, although if you lose your biological family, we try to help. Still not the same thing, but we do what we can to what? Love, support, admonish, encourage, and be friendly toward one another. That becomes the oil to cut down on the friction of the body of Christ. In persecutions, this shines forth the most importantly. Now, the priorities of what it means to be a mother and a brother, whoever does the will of God comes forth in persecution because in persecution, brothers and sisters, you'll find out your family probably won't be nice to you anymore. In easy times, they'll put up with your Christianity, they'll be nice to you, have Thanksgiving, you'll probably be in their will and things like that. That's great. Keep it up. Keep a good relationship with them. Love them. Because they are your own. Be patient with them. But in times of persecution, when everyone rises up and hates the Christian, they may turn against you. And that's when Jesus says, you must love me more than them. You must love me, Jesus says, more than them. And that's the will of God, right? The will of God is that you love my beloved Son. And if you're doing the will of God, loving the beloved Son... You are his brother, his mother. We are brothers and sisters and fathers and brothers, a family of God together in the midst of persecution of people who hate us. I pray it doesn't happen to you. Maybe your family is different that way, and they won't turn on you, as it were. I don't think it will happen anytime soon, but that reminds us that there will be circumstances in which the church will be pitted against the family. But until that time, don't make an effort to try to pit the two against each other. They're not designed that way. God never designed it that way. It's sin that broke that relationship. Now certainly one application as well of this truth that whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother that spiritual moral relationship we have through the power of the Holy Spirit is that the church helps pick up slack from broken families. Again, it helps. It can't compensate. Can't be your father, can't be your mother. But there are consequences, of course, to these things, and the church is here to help the best we can. to support, give aid, direct aid, indirect aid, verbal, whatever else it takes. And we're called, therefore, to to prepare our heart accordingly. With all those passages, again, to be prepared to do the one another when it's required of us. The circumstances dictate it, and we have the ability to do it. As the future changes, brothers and sisters, we'll have to do more of this for one another. The church is indeed the family of God. It exists alongside the biological family that God has given us and all its extensions. It does not replace the family as we know, because it didn't replace it in Christ's life, or your responsibilities to your family, nor to your church. The family can't make a call upon your responsibilities against Christ. It exists to glorify God and to help one another, that is the church, do the will of God. Who is your mother and your brother? Certainly it's your biological relations. But it's also something we should never forget. Your mother and your brother are also spiritual relations that we must love as well as the other. Let us pray. Father of truth, we thank you for being our father and that we are your children and therefore adopted. And the language here, God, and the family of God fits right into that doctrine. That we are given privileges. And one of those privileges, God, and rights that we have is the love from one another and the help and the assistance in the prayers as best we can. Help us, God, we pray, indeed, that your Spirit will work through us to continue to keep that love that we have had in this church for many years. In your name we pray, for glorious Christ's name's sake, amen. Let us stand and let us sing hymn 409. of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.